Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about hymns and the importance of lyrics that precisely reflect Catholic doctrine. Then it's on to St. Andre Bisset, a humble doorkeeper with a local connection whose feast day we celebrate today. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Bishop. Same to you, Kyle. How was your How was your Christmas season? How's it been? It was very nice. Yeah, uh, different than past years, but it, it was a good time with smaller amount of family. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. And uh, blessed Epiphany this past Sunday. Uh, I was at St. Matthew's in South Bend at the cathedral. And um, there was a power outage because they had a lot of ice and snow on the South Bend side of the diocese. By the way, it was so beautiful seeing the the trees covered in ice, but there was no electricity. So we had mass and candlelight and people loved it. There you go. I had to project my voice because, of course, the microphones weren't working, Uh but they have very good acoustics at St. Matt's. But that was kind of neat. It's, you know, of course, Epiphany is the festival of lights, and here we are in darkness, but the lights of the candles really made it a prayerful environment. Did everybody get a candle? Like an Easter vigil kind no, of thing? No, no. It was just candles, a lot of candles okay. at the altar and at the statues and things, but not in the congregation okay. itself, no. All right. Well, would you like to start us in prayer today? Yeah. You know, I thought I would, since today, January 6th, is the feast of of St. Andre Bassett, I thought I would do the uh, the opening prayer, the collect that we do at Mass today. Of course, St. Andre, known for his great devotion to St. Joseph, and this is the year of St. Joseph. Right. So it's kind of special uh, celebrating his memorial this year. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, friend of the lowly, who gave your servant, St. Andre Bessette, a great devotion to St. Joseph and a special commitment to the poor and afflicted. Help us through his intercession to follow his example of prayer and love and so come to share with him in your glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Have you ever been to Montreal, Kyle, to the oratory? No, I haven't. Have you? Yeah, I was there once, and um, well, maybe later in the show we can talk more about St. Andre, but but he was responsible. It's the largest church in the world dedicated to St. Joseph. It's it's really beautiful. and But it's interesting. I always thought we have some great scholars and that of the Holy Cross order, and yet their first uh, saint is the very poor doorman, uh, porter, uh, religious brother, Brother Andre. So we can talk more about him yeah, uh, during I'd the show. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about him. Uh, one thing yeah. that we were talking about last time was the USCCB's Committee on Doctrine talking about the COVID vaccines. If people missed that, they can check out past episode of the show. Uh, we didn't have time. We kind of ran out of time to discuss another important piece that the committee talked about was a document that evaluates hymn lyrics based on their doctrinal content. So I'm excited to hear more about this. What was your role in this? Did you have a lot to say on it? Well, yeah, I'm the, since I'm the chair of the committee, of course, 
But I mean, we have excellent members and consultants that, that helped in drawing up the document. It's been something they've looked at for, actually, they started looking at this before I was even chair of the committee because there have been concerns about some hymns and their lyrics where some of the hymns we sing either lack substance or or really have some doctrinal problems in the uh, wording that can be misleading. So we really wanted to look at um, and issue a document that would be a resource for hymn publishers and also for bishops so that when they evaluate, if they give an imprimatur to a, a book of hymns, that they would look for certain things in evaluating so that they would you know, ask for changes rather than just approve something that could have some deficiencies in the lyrics. And there was a problem in, in catechetical texts a couple decades ago. And Archbishop Beekline of Indianapolis was um, in charge of evaluating and, and, and looking at a process for evaluating catechetical materials. And basically, they found 10 common deficiencies in cath- catechetical materials. So that was really an important impetus for new catechetical works and for evaluating catechetical materials so that there wouldn't be doctrinal problems. Mm-hmm. That was very successful, very successful. It was a great help to bishops, great help to catechists, to writers of catechetical materials. And that was back in 1997. Well, when you look at certain hymns, we see some of these doctrinal deficiencies. And we see the same errors that we saw in catechetical materials. So we kind of looked at that, those 10 common deficiencies that Archbishop Beekline had noted, and we kind of applied them to uh, hymns today. Mm-hmm. So hopefully our work will, and the document we put out, will be a helpful resource in evaluating the suitability of hymnals and hymns that are used in the church in our country. Well, I suppose for those that are using old hymnals that might have some of these problematic songs, it'll be a good resource for the parish priest or liturgist to help to discern if these songs are appropriate to play at Mass as well. Right. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I sent this document to all of our pastors and our uh, uh, musicians and parishes so that they would be alert. Mm -hmm. Obviously, things like the singability or the uh, quality of music, all of that is important also. Well, we, But what we've really focused on was doctrinal content. And really, when you look at the texts for hymns, the sources should be like the scriptures or other uh, materials that are part of the liturgy, mm-hmm. uh, some of the liturgical sources that we draw lyrics for hymns chiefly from scripture and from liturgical sources. That's important. And that's how in our own tradition from antiquity, from the early centuries, that's how hymns were or music lyrics were drawn up. So there were two general guidelines that we basically followed and really two questions for determining whether a hymn is doctrinally suitable 
for the liturgy. And the first is, is it in conformity with Catholic teaching? And second, is the hymn expressed in image and vocabulary appropriately reflective of the usage of Scripture and the public liturgical prayer of the church? Can can you break that second one down a little bit? I think the the yeah. idea of it being conformed with Catholic doctrine that makes sense. We don't want anything that contradicts doctrine. Can you explain that second one? Yeah. For example, if you are using, if you if you're singing a, a communion hymn, uh, and that's basically one of the biggest deficiencies that we found are in some of the the hymns, the deficiencies in the Eucharistic doctrine. Mm-hmm. How you refer to the body and blood of Christ. It, there are some hymns where they're constantly just using bread and wine rather than the body and blood of Christ. Now, it is okay scripturally to use the word bread. Obviously, we refer to Jesus as the bread of life. Right. So you can use that, but nowhere in scripture do they speak of the Eucharistic blood of Christ as wine. So we shouldn't be either in our hymns. So that's where you look, that's where I talk about, or what we talk about, how it's used in scripture, Mm -hmm. okay? Or public liturgical prayer of the church, if you look at the prayers in the missal, et cetera. That's the kinds of language that we should be using in our hymns. And you mentioned you kind of base this off of the 10 different guidelines for catechesis, you have six areas of concern that you listed for music. Was there four of them that applied to catechetics that didn't apply, or did you combine some? Or That's correct. No, that that's correct. And I, I don't have them in front of me, but yeah, there were some that we really didn't see. But the deficiencies that we did see were in those six of the ten areas. Okay. I mean, by the way, we looked at over a thousand hymns. <laughs> I mean, this was a lot of work. Uh-huh. And most of them were composed in the last 40 years. Okay. Okay. Uh, The most serious and the most common deficiency was the inadequate presentation of the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, which is, you know, at the very center of our faith. And when you have problematic doctrine of the Eucharist, that also affects, for example, other teachings on the church, on the priesthood, so if you have a steady diet of certain hymns and, and people just start thinking that way, in other words, what we sing can affect our belief. So if we constantly come together and sing about sharing bread and wine, that can lead to real difficulties um, where people might start thinking, well, this is just bread and wine. Right. It's It's not... It's, it's vaguely somehow Jesus, but but they really would be led to understand that, um, or to downplay, I guess, the real presence. Or, or hymns that don't ever mention that the Eucharist is the sacrifice of Christ, that they just speak of it always as a meal. Now, it is a meal. It's a sacred banquet. We eat and we drink the body and blood of the Lord. But it's the Eucharistic sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that becomes present on the altar. So if you get a steady diet of Eucharistic hymns that ignore the Eucharist as sacrifice or 
don't talk about at all about worshiping or adoring Christ in the Eucharist, it really can be harmful to people's faith. And you know, and you have to be precise in the language. You know, there's some I forget the hymn, but where it says something about Christ is present in bread and wine. No. The substance of bread and wine ceases to exist as such. Okay? Right. It's not that Jesus is present in bread and wine. No. He's substantially presence present under the appearances of bread and wine. Now, some people may say, well, that's a theological technicality. Uh-huh. But but no, we should be precise. I'm not saying that you, you sing about transubstantiation and use, you know, you can use different terms, but we have to avoid anything that implies that the uh, elements are still bread and wine mm-hmm. after consecration. You know, they're not. Or the idea that, oh, it's just symbolic of, of Christ. No, it's, it's not just symbolic, it's real. And as I said, you know, we shouldn't be using wine after speaking or singing about wine after the consecration has taken place, giving the impression that it's still wine. Mm-hmm. Whereas with bread, it's a little different because, you know, we can't speak of the body of Christ as the bread of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we find that in Scripture. Let me give you an example because sometimes this sound, I mean, I don't know if you know some of these hymns, but I'll give you some examples. Have you heard of this, the song, All Are Welcome? Have yeah. you ever? Yep. Yeah. Now, now, listen to these lyrics and think about how doctrinally deficient they are. All are welcome. By the way, I don't want this song being sung in our diocese. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is how it goes. Well, I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. You could sing it, Kyle. You have a good voice. Um, but one verse says, let us build a house where love is found in water, wine, and wheat, a banquet hall on holy ground where peace and justice meet. Well, what's the image of the Eucharist you get in that? It's like an ordinary banquet where one drinks water, one drinks wine, and eats wheat bread. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, water isn't on the same level as bread and wine as matter for the Eucharist, okay? So to list them in sequence, kind of gives the implication that we're at a banquet and we're eating ordinary food together. Um, but and, and there's not other things in the hymn that would correct that or mitigate that right. understanding. And if you keep singing this song frequently, you know, you don't get the sense that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And the idea of let us build a house as if our actions make the church. No, they don't. That's the faulty ecclesiology, a faulty understanding of the church, which is another one of the deficiencies we'll be talking about. But you see it here, the idea that we make the church. No, the Eucharist makes the church. And the Eucharist represents the sacrifice of the cross, which makes the church. So that's one example. A couple other hymns we point out. I'll just mention them if you've... If you know of any of these, I don't know that I've heard these. God is here as we are as people is one. Another is now in this banquet. Now in this banquet, Christ is our bread. Here shall all hunger be fed. Have you heard that one? I don't know if I have. Yeah, I don't know either. I won't talk about that. Let us break bread together on our knees. That sounds familiar. Yeah. 
and then we sing, let us drink wine, wine together on our knees. So oh, okay. again, the reference to wine is used in a way that indicates only the presence of ordinary wine. So that's a problem. Now, we have plenty of Eucharistic hymns that don't have these deficiencies. I mean, we have traditional hymns like the Ave Verum Corpus, Taste and See, You Satisfy the Hungry Heart, you know, the Gift of Finest Wheat, I Am the Bread of Life, mm -hmm. At That First Eucharist. I mean, we have a lot of good, uh, at the Lamb's High Feast, a lot of good Eucharistic hymns, but, but we have to be much more careful. So if parishes have some of these problematic hymns in their hymnals, I suggest that the music leaders and the priests kind of just don't make sure that those hymns aren't used. And all of this is coming from the document we mentioned earlier. It's called Catholic Hymnody at the Service of the Church, an Aid for Evaluating Hymn Lyrics. It's available from the USCCB's website, usccb.org, and it's a... 19-page PDF that you can check out. It lists all these six deficiencies along with like a breakdown of why examples like you just gave of, of hymns that should not be used and hymns that could be used. So I think the document's very clear, easy to follow, and very helpful. But I appreciate you breaking this down even more so. So you talked about the treatment of the Eucharist. Uh, maybe... Should we just list the other five or take them one by one? Well, I think we can just take one in a little bit more depth than the others, because the or one or two of the others, and the others we can just list, because what I want to talk about are the most common. So the Eucharistic uh, deficiencies are the most common, but the second most common would be how the Holy Trinity is presented. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is because certain writers are reluctant to use the word Father for the first person of the Blessed Trinity. Hmm. So it's problematic because they get into some Trinitarian errors. So it's important that um, we keep in mind that the substance of God is undivided. Okay, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So language that implies that God has parts is not right. And I'll give some examples in a minute. Or sometimes you'll have Trinitarian invocations in a hymn that mix words that designate relations, the persons in the Trinity. Now, when you think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are distinct in relation, okay? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. However, when you use something like Creator, that applies to all three persons. So you have to be really careful. You can't just substitute the name Creator for Father, you know, because the Son and the Holy Spirit I mean, the use of the word creator can apply to all three persons hmm. with words that d designate their unique relations. Otherwise, the idea that can be communicated is that, okay, the first person is God, but the others aren't God, you know, and that's Arianism, you know, that's the heresy. Hmm. 
So anyhow, you have to be really careful. We really should adhere to the language of Scripture when we refer to God. You know, look, think of the baptismal formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we should use masculine pronouns for God and for each person of the Trinity, as, as the church says we should. There's a contemporary setting of a doxology at the end of the Magnificat and the Benedictus, you know, which we pray in morning and evening prayer of the church. And let me just give you an example. It says, all glory be to God, creator blessed, to Jesus Christ, God's love made manifest, and to the Holy Spirit, gentle comforter, all glory be both now and evermore. So it talks about God, creator blessed, who then kind of stands in an ambiguous relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Hmm. You know, God, creator blessed, is all three, each of the persons. But when you sing that, it sounds like Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are less than God, creator blessed, which is how they're trying to refer to the Father. They're they're trying to avoid using the term Father. For right. God, the Father, for the first person of the Blessed Trinity. So anyhow, that's I could get into more examples, but I think you get the message that we have to be really precise about how we speak of God as uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Trinity. The words are important. The words that the church gives us to use in these different situations are very intentional. And even whenever we're talking about you know new translations of the Mass, it's always to be more accurate and more clear in what we're declaring as, as doctrine, as our beliefs. So, Right, right. No, exactly. There's also, there are, in the third area of deficiencies in the doctrine of God and in his relations to humans, and this is what our document says, Catholic doctrine regarding God is that he transcends the world and history and yet has revealed his name in an act of self-emptying love, handing himself over by making his name known, though it is a name as mysterious as God is. Although God transcends all creatures, nevertheless, language drawn from the perfections of creatures, while always falling short of the reality, really does attain to God himself. So there's this hymn titled, God Beyond All Names. That's very misleading. The lyrics are, God beyond all names. All around us, we have known you. All creation lives to hold you. In our living and our dying, we are bringing you to birth. We say in our document, this fails to respect God's transcendence. God is not dependent upon human actions to bring him into being. You know, the idea we are bringing you to birth. What is that? Furthermore, God is not beyond all names, either in the sense of his revelation of his name or in the sense of analogical language. In the liturgy of the church, God isn't nameless. He's addressed with names like Father, Lord. So, you know, there's some of those things that when I see a hymn like that or it's sung, I'm like scratching my head like, what is that trying to say? You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's confusing. There's another that I think is pretty common. Hymns with a view, another deficiency. Hymns with a view of the church that sees her as essentially a human construction. 
You know, the idea that we're the ones who make the church is a problem. And I think the worst and most egregious hymn that I've ever heard in this regard is the song, Sing a New Church. I've only heard it a few times. We, I really tell people here not to use that hymn. But you've probably, have you heard that hymn, Kyle, I, Sing a New Church? It doesn't sound familiar. That's good. That means that St. Mary's Decatur, you're pretty good. Well, this was this gained some popularity, but listen to these these lyrics. Sing a new church into being, one in faith and love and praise. Well, first of all, since when are we the ones making the church? And since when is there a new church replacing the old one? There's one church, right. you know, through history. So that's uh, you know that's that's a problem. Sure. Another is there are hymns with doctrinally incorrect views of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. We have to, we should be very careful that we follow, especially the teaching of Second Vatican Council and Catholic teaching regarding Jews and their relationship to the death of Christ. We don't blame Jews indiscriminately for the passion of Christ because all of us, all sinners, are responsible for Christ's passion. So there's that song, The Lord of the Dance. Mm-hmm. I think you've probably heard of that in sure. verse 3. Verse 3 is very problematic. It says, I danced on the Sabbath, and I cured the lame. The holy people said it was a shame. They whipped, and they stripped, and they hung me high, and they left me there on a cross to die. Now, the phrase holy people referring to the Jews is used sarcastically we say in our document, and the whole holy people did not reject Jesus nor crucify him. Some Jews and some Romans did. So we have to be careful in hymns on how the Jewish people are are referred to. Sure. Do you think that people will revise some of these songs or should they just be eliminated completely? I think they can be revised. Okay. Like like some can uh, just, if there's a problematic verse, just remove that verse sure. or correct it. Okay. I'm not even getting into the uh, judgment of the musical quality right. of some of these hymns. But sure. as far as the, the lyrics, they can often be revised. And I hope some of these composers, some of these writers will be docile and, and make corrections. Okay. As a matter of fact, I gave a... When I had to give a, approval to, for a hymnal that was being created here in our diocese, there were a couple hymns I, I did not approve, and they couldn't put them in the hymnal, or I said that they had to take a particular verse out of the hymn or correct it, and they did because they wanted the imprimatur. Mm-hmm. And the final, the sixth area of deficiency has to do with incorrect Christian anthropology. There's a song, The Canticle of the Sun, verse 6, that says, Praise for our death that makes our life real, the knowledge of loss that helps us to feel. That's kind of a strange view of death. Death is the punishment of original sin. And as we say in our document, far from making our life real, it makes our life less real than it was in Adam. So this verse teaches that death is natural, necessary for our life to have something at stake and thus be real. But what makes our life real is the resurrection of Christ, restoring what we lost in Adam. Mm -hmm. 
So anyhow, that's some of that isn't as egregious as other things. But um, so that's yeah. I encourage people to read it. I encourage especially any of our liturgy people or music directors in parishes to read this document and and to be attentive to the hymns that are that are chosen in planning the liturgies uh, here in our diocese. Sure. All right. Again, this document is called Catholic Hymnody at the Service of the Church, an Aid for Evaluating Hymn Lyrics. You can find it at usccb.org, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Uh, but if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have several feast days to talk about including, as Bishop mentioned earlier, St. Andre Bousset, and some others if we have time, and if we have, if we have time, some listener-submitted questions. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I mentioned we were going to talk about St. Andre Bissette, uh, but why don't we go ahead and start with some of the listener-submitted questions so we see if we can get those in. I feel like we've been putting these off <laughs> for several weeks. So several of these are Christmas, but we're still in the Christmas season. So our first listener-submitted question is, why is there so much focus and enthusiasm for a Christmas tree? Oh, interesting. Did I talk on this program about the significance of the Christmas tree? I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've heard uh, other people talk about it a little bit, but yeah. it is an interesting yeah. thing because it's not biblical. Yeah. And right. It does have some pagan origins. and But then you see with St. Boniface, the Apostle of Germany, and how he kind of baptized it and made it Christian, which I think is great. Uh, you know, the symbolism, it's, it's, it's kind of the shape of a triangle, so reminding us of the Trinity, it points to heaven, huh. uh, and it has evergreen, which kind of has the idea of eternal life. So, it's kind of been given some Christian meaning, and of course, when you decorate the tree with lights, that's, you know, symbolic of Christ, the light of the world. You can have the star of Bethlehem on the top or an angel on the top. You can decorate it with all kinds of ornaments, including those with Christian Catholic significance. So, so it's a good thing. I mean, I like Christmas trees. I think you can be enthusiastic, but it's just symbolic representative of some of, you know, you can make it as, uh, you know, into a having Christian meaning. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Someone asked, do you have a favorite Christmas ornament? Uh, not a particular one. I mean, there's certain ones that are, you know, some that have been given to me through the years or that people have made kind of nice memories of, of years gone by, but I can't think of one in particular. Okay. Another listener wrote in, I've been seeing ads for Exodus 90 everywhere. Is it a program you have tried? Would you recommend it for all men? What fruit have you seen from it? Oh, I strongly support Exodus 90. I'm on the board. I welcome it to our diocese. And uh, it's just a great uh, group of guys who, who have uh, 
made this program. I think it's been spiritually beneficial for those who've done the 90 days and continued even afterwards with the sacrifices and prayers that are involved. I myself have not yet done the full 90 okay. days. I keep saying I'm going to do it. <laughs> I still do want to. I think one of the problems is getting, because you do it in fraternity, so you do it in a small group of men. And uh, that's a little bit challenging for me with my schedule, so I have to do this, plan this ahead of time. But from all the good fruits that I've heard about and seen from men, both young adult men and older men, they say how much it's helped, it's strengthened their marriages, it's uh, increased their prayer life, it's made them more active in the practice of their faith. So. I think the good fruits show that it's it's really something very, very good. And so I recommend men of our diocese all the time. I'm recommending guys to try it out, even though I need to do it myself. Right. Well, I think you can start and end anytime. The, the most popular is to end at Easter. So starting sometime in right. January, depending on when Easter falls. So maybe we'll have to do the countdown for next year for you. So you can get started yeah. for 2022. Yeah. I mean, the sacrifice of giving up, you know, a lot of TV and and uh, computer time and all that. Have you done it yet, Kyle? Yeah, I did. And we've we've continued with uh, what they call the Day 91 things. Yeah. Actually, Nate is uh, part of our fraternity on the other side of the window there from you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you found it beneficial? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been great. I think, you know, a lot of what's in the program wouldn't be too difficult for me except one thing. What's that? The cold showers. <laughs> It's the worst. It is. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially, you know, how am I going to have the time to shampoo my hair under yeah, that? You right, know, it'd be right. tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we do have an advantage there. <laughs> All right. Well, if it's not too late, I mean, we're still beginning the new year. Someone asked, what's a good New Year's resolution and what should we start doing or stop doing? Uh, that's always a very individual, personal thing. I find that New Year's resolutions are often made and not followed through on. So I kind of focus more on when it comes to, to Lent, on a Lenten resolution. Although I did make a little New Year's resolution this year, which was to stop spreading my work all over my house, on my <laughs> kitchen table and dining room table. And I said, okay, I've got to separate my work from my... So uh, so I made a resolution. I moved everything to four desks upstairs. Okay. No, three desks upstairs. <laughs> and already a couple things have gotten back to my kitchen table. And so I, I'm not doing so well on my New Year's resolution. I think if you're looking at one, I think it's always good to have some kind of... Uh, you know, prayer resolution, you know, is, is one thing I recommend. Very good. All right. Well, you mentioned we've got some saints. We've got uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton was January 4th on Monday. St. John Neumann, January 5th on Tuesday, which is not to be confused with St. John Henry Newman, two different saints. Yeah. Uh, and then today is the Feast of St. Andre Bissette. So... I know yeah. a little about him, and I've probably forgotten more than I remember. Well, I was at his beatification when I was a student in Rome. I think it was in 1982. And then after I became Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, he was canonized later in 2010. And I was fortunate to be able to go with uh, a lot of our Holy Cross priests and brothers and sisters to uh, his, canoniza or, yeah, his canonization in Rome. So I've had kind of... Um, 
connection with uh, St. Andre. He's Canadian. He was born in a large Catholic family. And um, I think he was uh, one of 12 children. And it was really a poor French-Canadian family, but very devout Catholics. And his name was Alfred, by the way. His religious name is Andre, but his oh, okay. baptismal name was Alfred. And he was a very sick baby. Really, he never had good health throughout his life. He ended up, live, unbelievably, led, uh, ended up living to 91, hmm. to, to the age of 91. But he always had kind of a frail health. In those early years, you know, his, his, he had wonderful parents. However, he, uh, his father was killed in a lumber accident. He was, a lump, uh, he was involved in lumbering. And uh, Alfred was just six years old. And then with all those children, the mother couldn't, didn't have the means to support them, 12 children. So she ended up, I guess, some of the children went with different relatives because she couldn't even provide food for them. But she did keep Alfred because he was so feeble. And then they went to live with her sister, so Alfred's aunt. And only a couple years after, two years later, his mother died. So he lost both parents. Then he just stayed with his aunt. But he did learn the faith, and and uh, evidently his mother was especially was very holy, and had an influence on a uh, great influence on him. Although he was still a boy when she passed away, he was often sick. As I said, he he missed school a lot, so he didn't get much schooling. He had very painful stomach problems. When he turned eighteen, he went to the United States for a few years. He worked in on farms and factories and all that. But again. He had trouble because of his his health. When he returned to Canada, he tried other different little jobs, but he settled in a village where he had made his first communion. And there was a wonderful pastor whose name was Father Andre, Father Andre Provençal. And uh, young Alfred would help him around the church, different chores, and he'd spend more and more time in prayer, especially before a statue of St. Joseph in the parish church. And the pastor, Father Andre Provençal, saw how this young man had such a wonderful prayer life, genuine. I mean, he, he would spend a lot of time there in prayer. So the pastor kind of thought he might be called to the religious life. So he asked Alfred about it, and he suggested to him the Congregation of Holy Cross. Now, Alfred was very humble, and, and he knew that his education was very poor, and he didn't really feel that he was worthy or suitable, but he agreed to at least present himself to Holy Cross and they could decide. He's 25 years old at this time, and there's a famous thing that Father Andre Provençal wrote to the superiors of the Congregation of Holy Cross. He wrote to them, I am sending you a saint. Hmm. I am sending you a saint. Okay, so this 25-year-old who actually did become a saint, but that pastor saw it even when he was so young. Although he did somewhat well in when he was accepted by Holy Cross, at least for their formation, by the time it came to take, when his, uh, during his novitiate, and it was time to get to take vows, first vows, temporary vows, the superiors thought that, that he really can't because his health was not good. So they saw that to as an impediment to his future perpetual profession of vows. So Alfred was obviously 
very devastated, you know, like he loved the life of a religious, of a religious brother. So a few weeks later, the Bishop of Montreal was visiting the congregation uh, at the novitiate where, where Alfred was. And he went, Alfred went to the Bishop and he asked the Bishop to talk to his superiors. And he said to the Bishop, my only ambition is to serve God in the most humble tasks. Well, the bishop was really moved by this. And he went and talked to the superiors. So they allowed him to continue and to take his vows as a religious brother. And it was at that point that he took the name Andre, because that's when you take your religious name. And it was because of the priest, the Father Andre, who had sent him to the Congregation of Holy Cross. So it was kind of in honor of that priest. That's how he got the name. One of the superior of the novices, when he accepted Brother Andre as a brother, wrote that he says, if this young man becomes incapable of working, at least he will know how to pray very well. Hmm. So they saw his prayer life. Now, most of the uh, brothers and, well, most of the members of Holy Cross were priests and there were, there were brothers and most of the brothers would do manual labor. Some would teach in the schools, etc. What did Brother Andre do? For 40 years, he was a porter. A, the, he, he was the, the doorkeeper at the College of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart in one of the neighborhoods of Montreal. So it was a very simple job. And he made that joke uh, later. He said, when I joined this community, the superior showed me the door. <laughs> well, while he was there, he lived in a small room near the main entrance, near the door. And he did a lot of menial tasks. He'd wash floors. He'd wash windows. He'd clean. He would help with the mail or the laundry. I mean, it was all these kind of menial jobs. But he'd have a lot of good interactions with the other brothers and with the students there at the school. He also became a barber, so he would cut the hair of students and he'd get, you know, barbers get a lot of good conversations with those that they're cutting the hair. So so that was his life. But all through this, he had so much faith, so much humility, and it became such that people word spread about how spiritual he was. And because he would give such wonderful advice to people, uh, people who would come, who would have problems or who'd be sick. He would talk to them about the value of suffering and, and all this. And eventually there were a lot of healings that were starting to take place and cures because he'd pray with people. So he became known as the miracle worker of Montreal. And not only hundreds, but thousands of people started coming hmm. because of his miracles. And, he would get upset if people said that he was a miracle worker because he attributed all of it to his favorite saint, St. Joseph, who, to whom he had this tremendous devotion. But with all these people coming and a lot of them sick, it became a problem at the college. First of all, some of the, the people didn't believe that, he, that this was all real, that this was really happening. But others, some of the parents of the students, they didn't like the fact that people were coming who were sick. They might be carrying with them contagious diseases and all that. So, so basically, his superiors said he couldn't 
see people anymore. He could only go down to the train station, which was nearby, and he could see people there. And that's where people started to come then. But he always had this strong devotion to St. Joseph, so he, he wanted to raise money for a shrine to St. Joseph. And his superior said he could, and he did. This was by around the year 1904. They constructed this, this chapel, um, and there was a room added to it, and that's where Brother Andre could receive pilgrims and pray for them. So, so again, a procession of all these people kept coming to Brother Andre. And then they began to construct a bigger church, which is called St. Joseph Oratory. That began in 1914. He was, and that was to seat a thousand people in just the crypt that was completed by 1917. Uh, there'd be a lot of pilgrims who would come there, hundreds of cures. And then as they started to build the big church over this crypt, Brother Andre died in, on January 6, 1937. He never saw this completed, but it was really because of him that they built this magnificent oratory on a hill in Montreal. When he died, over a million people in the course of a week came by to see his body. Hmm. So... Again, he was very famous, and he was just this simple religious brother through whom God works so much good. Well, thanks for catching us up on St. Andre Bissett. Uh, speaking of Holy Cross, if you have any questions, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, Bishop, could we have your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>